2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and I'm Holly Fry. Today we are drawing straight from the listener requests again. This is another one that has been requested many, many, many times. It is Orphan Trains. If you have never heard of Orphan Trains before, This probably sounds to you like trains full of orphans being taken to new homes, which is kind of correct. Between 1854 and 1929, about 250,000 children were taken to new families by train, except they weren't really called orphan trains at all at the time. A lot of the children were not actually orphans, and a lot of times these families who were taking them in were more like employers. So that is the story that we're going to tell today. Uh, and to get kind of some
4: groundwork laid, we're going to start with the context of the situation. After the end of the War of 1812, the population of the United States, and particularly in the eastern port cities, really exploded. For example, about 40,000 people lived in New York in 1800. And by 1900, so just a 100 years later, it was close to a million and a half
2: so many of these new residents were desperately poor and very sick, having arrived with basically nothing from wherever they were emigrating from. Uh, and depending on where they were immigrating from, they often uh, faced a lot of prejudice and discrimination, which made it harder for them to find work and get on their feet.
4: As a consequence of this influx of people and poverty, the U.S. saw the rise of its first slums. Poverty has had always existed, but now there were entire neighborhoods that were really destitute. They had high crime rates, the buildings were deteriorating, and the circumstances were just apparently hopeless. And that was the prevailing scenario. And an alarming number of the people who lived in these neighborhoods were children.
2: Some of the children really were orphans. Uh, some had at least one living parent who, for whatever reason, couldn't or didn't support them. But regardless, by the mid-1800s, there were somewhere between 10,000 and 30,000 homeless children living in the slums of New York City, which at that point only had, the whole city only had a total population of 500,000 people. So that's a pretty significant chunk of the population that are homeless street children. In New York and other cities, children
4: formed gangs to try to keep themselves safe and supported themselves through petty theft and other crime, or even through begging. Others would find work in factories or as newsboys or shine boys, and some sold matches or rags on street corners
2: and, in some cases, became prostitutes. Because they kind of wandered like nomads through the city, people referred to these children often as street Arabs, and this all kind of calls up images of like Scrooge's street urchins or Oliver Twist. Um, and for a lot of children, that's pretty much how it really was. And with no other resources to handle them, uh, cities resorted to
4: incarcerating children in workhouses and prisons that had been meant for adults. Uh, but eventually they would build prisons and asylums for juveniles, which were really not much better
2: the field of social work also barely, if at all, existed at this point. Uh, we've done a previous uh, series of podcasts on Jane Addams, who's thought of as the mother of social work. She started doing her groundbreaking work kind of in the middle of when all of this was going on. So there was, you know, if, if law enforcement found a child who was in danger, there, it wasn't like there was a social worker or a Department of Social Services they could call for help.
4: There was also no foster care system. Foster care itself did exist, but it was in a very informal way uh, with individual families taking on children in need. And in that sense, fostering has really existed for as long as families have. But there was no organized system for placing children in foster families or for screening potential foster parents.
2: And there were also virtually no adoption laws in the United States at this point. The first adoption law passed in the U.S. was in Massachusetts, and that was passed in 1851. But other than that, there was, you know, before that point, there was no legal governance about how one made it official that this child was now part of your family.
4: So as a result of all of this and all of these sort of gaps in uh a social way to deal with all these children. Homeless children were a huge issue in many cities, particularly port cities. And the governments in question just didn't have the resources or programs that they would need to do much about it.
2: This brings us to Charles Loring Brace of Hartford, Connecticut. He was a Presbyterian from a middle class family, and he moved to New York City in 1848 so he could go to seminary. He was really horrified at this situation with homeless and orphaned children. And it was not just because what was happening to these children was horrifying. It was also because he thought that these hordes of unsupervised marauding children were a threat to the social order. His uh, opinion was that these kids who didn't have families and were kind of left up to their own devices and were often making ends meet for themselves through petty theft and other crime, Uh, He just thought they were going to grow up into hardened criminal adults. And he became really fixated on them. He would go exploring through the city's poorest neighborhoods and interview them and record their conversations in a journal. And he became really motivated to try to find some way to take care of this problem of homeless children left alone to do as they will. In March of 1853, he
4: started the Children's Aid Society, and the first programs of the Children's Aid Society were Sunday school and vocational training. And the society also started the United States' first home for runaways, the Newsboys Lodging House.
2: Uh, almost immediately though, the Children's Aid Society was just overrun with demand. There were not enough jobs or enough money to provide the services that these children really needed. Um, You know, at this point in history, it was pretty normal for children to work in some way. And while they were trying to match up children with jobs, the children vastly outnumbered the jobs uh, and they they did not have the funding to to do more uh, to really help.
4: And Brace wanted to do more, but he didn't just want to build more facilities to handle more children. He thought prisons and asylums were the wrong approach. In his words, quote, the best of all asylums for the outcast child is the farmer's home. The great duty is to get these children of unhappy fortune utterly out of their surroundings and to send them away to kind Christian homes in the country.
2: This is kind of alludes to the plan that Brace came up with, which he called the immigration plan. This was that they would gather up children from New York who uh, were homeless or whose parents couldn't care for them, and they would send them west to work on farms. This became known as outplacement. So you're placing children out versus placing them into an orphanage or an institution. He didn't exactly invent the idea of outplacement. Uh, The This act of, like, placing children out with other families existed before. But the Children's Aid Society and Brace's influence on it really became the biggest and most well-known outplacement effort.
4: So the Children's Aid Society turned its focus to raising money and working through all of the legal requirements involved in finding new homes for children and to finding the children to send sometimes working directly with uh, the birth parents themselves.
2: As the Children's Aid Society started sending the children out on trains and the program really started to take off, other agencies followed suit and they placed children from other major cities in the Northeast uh, elsewhere in the United States. And before we talk about what exactly was happening with these trains, let's take a moment for a brief word from a sponsor.
1: Seasons change. Why not your gaming tech? Upgrade now during the Alienware Summer Sale event and save on select next-gen Alienware PCs and more. Pair your impressive skills with advanced gaming systems, like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. The incredible design and unrelenting power of Alienware lets you game like never before. This is gaming perfected. Immerse yourself in leading-edge 4K UHD entertainment. Limited time offer. Shop our latest tech. Free shipping. When you shop online at alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition. And yes, that's free shipping on everything. Exceptional prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals.
4: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously.
2: Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Let's take a look at what was going on with the orphans and and the trains. So before being put on the trains, these children would be given uh, new clothes or put into their best clothes if they had clothes that were serviceable. Often this meant that they were in a, a new outfit that had been provided to them by charity. They were meant to look their best. But depending on how long and difficult the journey was, sometimes what really happened was by the time they arrived, they were filthy and sick.
4: Someone representing the agency usually went on the train with them. And often another agent had gone ahead to spread the word and begin screening potential parents and assembling a committee of local people, which usually included doctors and clergy, to help with the approvals. Agencies would also distribute leaflets
2: and place advertisements about the children. Here's an example of an ad that ran in Nebraska in 1893. All children received under the care of this association are of special promise in intelligence and health and are in age from one month to 12 years and are sent free to those receiving them on 90 days trial unless a special contract is otherwise made. Homes are wanted for the following children. Eight boys, ages 10, 6, and 4 years. English parents, blondes, very promising. Two years old, blonde, fine-looking, healthy, American has had his foot straightened, walks now okay. Six years old, dark hair and eyes, good-looking and intelligent American. Ten babies, boys and girls from one month to three months. One boy baby has fine head and face, black eyes and hair, fat and pretty, three months old.
4: Agencies also had rules for the placements themselves. Here's the Children's Aid Society rule for the placement of boys. Applications must be endorsed by the local committee. Boys under 15 years of age, if not legally adopted, must be retained as members of the family and sent to school according to the educational laws of the state until they are 18 years old. Suitable provisions must then be made for their future. Boys between 15 and 16 years of age must be retained as members of the family and sent to school during the winter months until they are 17 years old, when a mutual arrangement may be made. Boys over 16 years of age must be retained as members of the family for one year, after which a mutual arrangement may be made. Parties taking boys agree to write to the society at least once a year or to have the boys do so. Removals of boys providing unsatisfactory can be arranged through the local committee or an agent of the society, the party agreeing to retain the boy a reasonable length of time after notifying the society of the desired change. This
2: kind of reminds me of... Uh when you get a pet through pet rescue. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And obviously this particular set of rules is from after states had started to pass adoption laws, which was actually done in part to kind of curtail the more willy nilly aspects of this placement of children that was going on. Um, When the train arrived at a town, The children would be taken to a playhouse or a theater or some other suitable gathering place that had places for spectators and places to display the children. And the children would be paraded across the stage for the families to inspect. And so the term up for adoption purportedly comes from this practice of literally putting the children up on stage. And often the whole town would come to watch whether they wanted a child or not.
4: Sometimes the children would be asked to say something or perform in some way, and the prospective families would ask questions of them and sometimes inspect them in a way that was more
2: reminiscent of buying a horse or a slave. Uh, In some towns, demand for these children was really huge, and families would almost come to blows over who could pick from the limited number of children. Foster
4: families were supposed to have references from their pastor or the justice of the peace attesting to their character. But if none was available, the agent in charge would often just judge based on their appearance, their dress and their demeanor.
2: Children who couldn't find a placement would be put back on the train to be sent on to the next town or failing that would wind up in a local orphanage or some other local facility for homeless children. For
4: most agencies, the record keeping was pretty lax, Um the screening was pretty minimal. And depending on who you asked, these people taking in children could be considered parents or they could be considered more like employers.
2: There was also not a lot of follow up after the fact. Travel was really difficult and expensive at this point, which became a big deterrent against sending representatives from the agencies to check up on people Uh, Some of them, like the Children's Aid Society, had planned initially to do in-person follow-ups on a regular basis, but that never really came to fruition. Uh, And that pretty much meant that they were relying on the families or the children to send letters back to the agency, which also sometimes happened and sometimes not.
4: And although uh, most of the agencies that were kind of doing these sorts of projects of uh, Outplacing children followed similar methods. The Children's Aid Society really got some particular criticisms. And we're going to talk about those uh, after we have a quick word from our sponsor.
1: Seasons change. Why not your gaming tech? Upgrade now during the Alienware summer sale event and save on select next gen Alienware PCs and more. Pair your impressive skills with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. The incredible design and unrelenting power of Alienware lets you game like never before. This is gaming perfected. Immerse yourself in leading-edge 4K UHD entertainment. Limited-time offer. Shop our latest tech. Free shipping. When you shop online at alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition. And yes, that's free shipping on everything. Exceptional prices await you for a limited time only at alienware.com deals. That's alienware.com deals.
2: If you use
4: paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper you're a papertarian someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice.
2: Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. A lot of agencies, not just the Children's Aid Society, got involved in sending children out west or to some other place by train. Um, Charles Loring Brace, in particular, though, had some aspects to what he was doing and his philosophy that are kind of problematic. He was really sure that farms were the best places for New York's impoverished children. Uh, They would get used to doing honest work there, and they would ideally have the uh, affection and support of a family and this I mean it sounds like an at least well-meaning plan on the surface but there are aspects of it that are pretty problematic.
4: Fewer than half of the children that were sent on the trains by the Children's Aid Society were actually orphans. Uh, Roughly a quarter of them had one living parent and about a quarter had both parents still living so 50% of them had some parent in the mix Arguably, the living parents couldn't afford to or didn't want to raise their children, or the children were being abused, neglected, or mishandled in some way. Some were also teenagers who were making the step to leave home themselves with the aid of this free passage and clothing and work help that would come without placements.
2: Yeah, I did not find horror stories of, like... Children being taken with no regard to their parents. But I did find ones where the the parents were pressured pretty extensively to give up their children for their better good, you know, based on the person who was speaking to them's idea of what would be best for them. Um, His critics argued that Brace was really taking it upon himself to dictate what was best for these children, regardless of the parents' feelings or their actual situation.
4: And as a side note, the existence of parents for about half of these children is one reason why the phrase orphan trains wasn't really used at the time. The more common terms for this setup were mercy trains and even baby trains.
2: So one of Brace's actual stated goals was also to provide labor in the less uh, populated regions of the United States, where people were moving. Uh... You know, they were new families who were getting out to somewhere in the West. And, uh, you know, in in a typical situation, they probably would eventually have children and the children would eventually help them on the farm. But they needed that child, like that child help now. Um, So for this reason, most of the Children's Aid Society's children were between six and 14. So they were old enough to do work, but young enough to still be like trained and educated and maybe not so set in their ways and and obstinate as to cause problems for their new families.
4: Uh, Brace also definitely had some monetary motivations, pointing out how much cheaper it was to place children out than to put them into institutions.
2: And the last one is something that he denied, but a lot of people pointed out. A lot of the children who went on Children's Aid Society trains were Catholic or Jewish, and a lot of them were also Italian, Polish, or Irish. And these were all groups who faced massive amounts of prejudice and discrimination. Um, Italian, Polish, and Irish people were all viewed as, like, second class and inferior citizens. The families who received these children were mostly Protestant, and they were mostly not Italian or Polish or Irish. And so critics argued that Brace was trying to kind of strip these children of their religion and their heritage and to force them to assimilate to the culture that he thought was the best one um his, his like this was sort of the response of him being like nuh-uh and his critics being like yaha like <laughs> <laughs> uh, it does seem a little uh a little problematic that that was that that was generally how it went he would say well but there there just aren't as many you know non-protestant people Out West, that's why. And people would say, I don't really buy your argument. Yeah, it definitely does. Like the
4: data set does sort of support a a certain prejudice going into it. The Children's Aid Society also did not work with African-American children, although exactly why this is the case is not really clear. There were definitely fewer African-American homes in the West that could have taken the children. But it's also possible that this whole exercise looked way too much like slavery for anybody to be comfortable sending black children. Or it's also very possible that racists did not want that to be part of the system.
2: Yeah, nobody really clearly said why they were not working with African-American children. Some of the other outplacement organizations seeing what Brace was doing and seeing the flaws that people were pointing out in his plan, tried to avoid the controversies that he was generating. So, for example, the New York Foundling Hospital was a Catholic organization, and it sent children, including babies and toddlers, a lot of babies and toddlers, actually, exclusively to Catholic homes. The Boston Home for Little Wanderers also claims that its screening and follow-up processes were much more exact and stringent than Brace's were. So... Um, While the Children's Aid Society was the most well-known, there were a lot of other organizations that were into this whole practice, and some of them, uh, either by their own claims or by actual documentation, seem to have taken more deliberate care (laughs) with uh, the whole process.
4: Yeah, and while the Children's Aid Society was mostly sending children out to rural farming communities, the New York Foundling Hospital and other agencies were placing children much closer to home. So many of the children who were placed during this time actually stayed in New York, contrary to the perception that they all went west. And some of the other agencies were definitely more oriented toward children's welfare and not so much with the providing labor aspect of it.
2: So this whole phenomenon of the the trains and outplacement, it really hinged upon assuming the best in people. So everybody was assuming that the parents who were surrendering their children generally were doing so because they thought it was in the children's best interests. Uh, and everybody sort of assumed that the parents who were taking in these children really were doing so out of love and charity and not just to get free labor. But in reality, of course, people are not always doing their best.
4: And when it comes to what happened to the children that were involved, it's really something of a mixed bag. Some found themselves genuinely in happy homes when they were loved and cared for as though they were a member of the family, uh, working alongside other siblings on farms or in family businesses.
2: The whole practice had its share of horror stories, too, though there were definitely children who were abused, one whose foster families took them on strictly to act as unpaid manual labor. There were family members who were separated one another, separated from one another, and and the like. There are lots and lots of surviving letters and diaries that tell of children whose parents sent them away with notes that contained their names and their addresses, so that they could come back home eventually and stay in touch. Only for these notes to be taken away from the children by placement agents as they slept on the trains. That's so heartbreaking.
4: Uh There are also many, many first-person accounts of children who just did not know or understand what was happening to them. Some were too young to really grasp the situation, and others were simply never told what was going on. And in at least some cases, parents seem to have been pressured, as Tracy mentioned earlier, into surrendering their children when they didn't really want or possibly even need to.
2: Outplaced children also did not necessarily get a warm welcome in their new communities, A lot of people viewed the train children, as they were called, with suspicion. Surely they must have been of poor character or have come from bad families. There were also religious and cultural tensions as Catholic children were placed with Protestant families. And as we were speaking earlier, speaking about earlier, ethnic uh, tensions with Irish and Polish and Italian children who were placed into communities that carried prejudices against uh, all of these people, all of these nationalities. So sometimes, uh, you know, somebody, a child would leave a situation where they were homeless and begging on the streets and they would wind up in the situation where they had food and shelter, but were outcast and faced derision from the community. And there were also cases
4: where foster parents had taken in these children and they truly loved them and, you know, raised them as their own. And they lived in this sort of constant fear that someone was going to come and take their child away from them someday.
2: There was finally an independent investigation of the Children's Aid Society in 1883, and it found that there was very little screening of the prospective parents and very little supervision of the overall process. A significant number of the older boys who had been outplaced had later run away from home. But overall, the investigators found that for the most part, the children under the age of 14 who had been outplaced by the Children's Aid Society were doing okay. Uh, outplaced as a child, Andrew
4: Burke became governor of North Dakota and John Brady became governor of Alaska. They had both been sent to the same town in Indiana on the same day. And the man who adopted John Brady had actually been a judge there.
2: Because records weren't kept very well, while we do have, you know, stories about what some of these children grew up to be. Uh, a lot of times the children who had been placed out lost all track of their birth families if those families still lived. And so in, you know, more recent years, their children and grandchildren have been trying to trace down the family genealogy and just have been unable to figure out where their parent or grandparent came from before they got on the train.
4: The last train ran on May 31st of 1929, carrying three children to Sulphur Springs, Texas. And there were several, uh, things that kind of worked all together to really bring an end to this, uh, approach to outplacement. One was that the Great Depression made the trains financially unsustainable, uh, and people began to focus more on local outplacement of children. Prior to that, the trains had gone nearly to every state, as well as Canada and Mexico. But also a, a big factor in it was that social agencies had started focusing on trying to keep children with their birth families wherever that was possible.
2: The agencies that had been part of the orphan train movement later morphed into adoption and foster care agencies as we think of them today. And Brace's idea that children are better off in homes than in institutions continues to be at the heart of today's foster care programs.
4: This movement is often credited for spawning the foster care system as we know it today. And many states' adoption laws were put on the books in an effort to rein in Brace's seemingly haphazard placement of children with families.
2: A lot of the news articles that you will see about uh, the orphan trains, the American Heritage series that was, uh, or the American Heritage series, uh, TV show installment that was about the orphan trains. Most of these are from the mid 1990s as the last riders of the orphan trains were getting into their 80s and 90s. So very few, if any of the people who were placed out on the trains survive today. Uh, but fortunately in, in the 80s and 90s, people did a lot of documentation of like oral histories and first person accounts and talking to people who had ridden on the trains and been placed with the new family about their experiences. Today, the orphan train complex and other orphan
4: train historical and heritage societies try to keep the movement documented and help the descendants of children who rode the trains connect to one another.
2: Uh, so a whole lot of people have asked us to talk about orphan trains. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it Well, and it turned out to be a whole lot more layered than what I knew of it going into it. I basically knew the orphan trains. They took orphans on trains to get new families. And that is pretty reductive.
4: Yeah, well, and it's one of those things that there are a lot of complex angles to it. Like, while the initial impetus for it was surely, like, a, a good intent, you know, it, it ended up doing some not-so-great things, but also had some legacies that were good.
2: Yeah, well, and I think one of the things that... uh may not have occurred to anyone or it might not have been nearly as much common knowledge at the time. There have definitely been efforts in multiple places in the world to place minority children with majority families in an effort to make them assimilate. Mm -hmm. Um, And while that was not the like specified intention of any of the agencies that were running orphan trains, It did have a little bit of that flavor, which is troubling.
4: Yeah. It's, uh like I said, good and bad. Some good legacy, some very unfortunate circumstances.
2: But do you have a spot of listener mail for us? I do. It is from Valerie. Valerie says, Hey, Holly and Tracy, I was so excited to hear the Pueblo Revolt episode. I, along with others, I am sure, sent in a request for so long ago. I spent a lot of time as a kid learning about that time period outside of school. Growing up in Santa Fe with my dad curating a Navajo museum has affected my life in so many ways. Things like spending a couple weeks one winter living in a Hogan is not part of everyone's childhood. There's a favorite story that a friend of my dad's told us that I thought you guys might enjoy. Two of the artists my dad met through the museum used to give tours around the Pueblos around Arizona and New Mexico. They were getting off the bus with a group at a Hopi village. They walked up to the village and there was a large sign asking the visitors to respect the laws of this area since it is an independent nation. The first on the list was no photography. A lady in the group was taking pictures of the sign saying photography wasn't allowed. They asked her to stop and not take any pictures. The woman responded that they should have told her if they really meant it. <laughs>
4: I wonder if they put up a secondary part of the sign that said, no, we really mean it.
2: Oh, yeah. So that, that's what we're going to get to. This was so surprising to them that it became kind of a joke phrase, ending sta- statements and requests with, and I really mean it. They even began to use the acronym A-W-R-M-I, and we really mean it, etched into the jewelry they made as part of the identification marks. Uh, that cracked me up. That is so Obviously, funny. It cracked us both up. So every few podcasts, there's one that I know some of the basic information because of a board game I had played based on that time period. Most recently, I played a game themed to uh, being dressmakers in the French court a little before the time period of Rose Bertin. I ended up winning the game and like to think knowing about Rose gave me an edge. I also have a game called VOC about running ships as the Dutch East India Company. I think that if I studied all the themes of the games I played, I could probably become a history buff. And then uh, Valerie has an episode suggestion. I wanted to read this in part because the the And I Really Mean It story made me laugh so hard. Uh, and because I love having board games that have some kind of uh, nod to history somehow yeah. or tie into history in some way. Um, we have a giant board game closet, several of which uh, have some kind of historical tie-in or theme. Um, like Carcassonne is one where you make a, a French town pretty Awesome. Yeah. So thank you, Valerie. If you would like to write to us, you can. We're at History Podcast at Discovery.com. Our Facebook is Facebook.com slash Missed History, and our Twitter is Missed History. Our Tumblr is Missed and we are also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. Our very own website is at Missed Uh, And if you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent website, HowStuffWorks.com, and you can put in the word adoption in the search bar and you will find how adoption works. You can learn all about that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.
1: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay guaranteed fit,